There's an elderly man, the story is told, who was living alone in Ireland, and his only son was in Long Kesh prison. And he didn't know who he would get to dig up his potato garden, so he wrote his son a letter, and he received this reply. He said, for heaven's sakes, Dad, don't dig up that garden. That's where I buried the, the money and the guns. At about 4 o'clock the next morning, the old man was awakened by a dozen British soldiers who showed up and dug up the entire garden, but didn't find any guns or money. Uh, the old man watched, it wrote back to his son telling him what happened, and he asked his son what he should do next, and his son's reply was simple. It said, simply this, plant your potatoes. You know, I like that. When I heard that story, I thought a lot about the fact that, you know, it reminds me of how often in life I can miss things from God's perspective. How often in life it's so easy to miss things from God's perspective. If you've got your Bibles with you, I hope uh, you'd have them. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 55. It's important to keep these promises that we're going to read in Isaiah in mind as we head into the second half of our study of the book of Daniel. In Isaiah chapter 55, starting with verse 8, we read these words. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. And it shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. I like that passage because it helps us to identify certain truths or facts that I believe that we should never take for granted. And it's of particular interest to me as we look at this to consider what God has to say about his words because as we go into the second half of the book of Daniel, we're going to be challenged at times to wonder what the purpose of these words are. And there are several things I want to call your attention from the Isaiah passage. And the first thing is this, that God's ways and thoughts are not ours. Therefore, it's imperative that we seek his thoughts on all matters. And particularly as we get into the Word of God, that we go in with an open mind and that God would teach us and we'll be open to listen and to learn. There was a, a rebuke that was issued to a man named Diotrephes in the third chapter of the book of uh, John. Oh, in the third chapter of John, actually the third letter of John, and there's only one chapter, but it was in the eighth verse. And uh, basically he was rebuked for the fact that he was a man who could not be told anything, that he had got to the point in his life where he thought he knew it all. And uh, we're going to touch more on that in our retreat, which would be the third session down in the desert. And if you haven't signed up, it's a great time to do that. And anybody that's been there knows what a great weekend that it is. So I'd encourage you to consider it and to put it on your calendars. But the bottom line is that there's a point in time where every one of us have got to be open-minded to the truth that God wants to teach us. And so oftentimes we go into the Bible with a preconception or we want it to say what we want it to say rather than to be open and say, God, you know what, I'm not really sure on this matter. And I want you to teach me and to tell me what your truth is. And see, and that's what God is saying. He goes, you know what, don't ever, don't ever mistake the fact that our thoughts aren't God's thoughts. And our ways aren't God's ways. And so we need to go to him to seek his thoughts and to seek his ways and then to adopt those as our own. The second thing is, which is interesting is, is that God's thoughts and his ways are always revealed in his word. That's the only place that we'll ever learn the thoughts of God is through the word of God. And so as we look at that, it's important to recognize when he says, My word shall go forth. Notice that just as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and waters the earth and it serves a purpose and it accomplishes something, God says this, and he makes this promise, My word will go forth from my mouth and it shall never return empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I have sent it. And I like that. If you've got your Bible still open, go back to 2 Timothy, which we looked at last week in our time together, but as a reminder. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we see the encouragement that uh, Paul had given to Timothy as he laid out the word, starting with verse, verse 14. He said this, 2 Timothy 3, says, You, however, continue. It's a never-ending process to continue in the word of God, to continue in the things that you have learned. You have become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them. And I like that. The more we get into the Word of God, the more convinced we are that what God has to say is truth. And the bottom line is is that we have learned these from the Word of God. 
you know, while there may be people who come in our life who are teachers and preachers and things of that nature, we must never forget to understand this simple truth, that every time we go into the Word of God, it's as if God Himself is speaking directly to us. And basically all that a teacher or a pastor becomes is a messenger for God that points you back to the truth of the Word of God. He says that you, you must become, you're convinced of these things, you know whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures or the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture. It's important that I underline that at this particular case, because as we get into the prophetic se section of this particular um, study that we'll be doing, sometimes we need to be reminded that, you know what, all scripture, every word, Every dot, as Jesus said, every, every, every dot, every tittle, every word of God has a purpose and a reason. And I'll never forget what that, when God had taught me that lesson for, for one, the last time in my life that he needed to remind me of this. So many times I read through the Bible and I skip over things that have, seemingly have no interest to me, uh, particularly the genealogies. You know, it's kind of, you know, life is tough enough without trying to pronounce every name in a genealogy section. So you just kind of go, okay, and then these are a bunch of people. Good. And, you know, that's, that's kind of like the New Living Translation, you know, and, and these people. And then you just keep going. And I heard at one particular point a missionary who was speaking saying that, you know, they were having a real hard time sharing the Word of God with this particular group of people that God had sent them to. And uh, for a number of years, actually, they were struggling to try to get people to understand the truth of the Word of God. And finally, they got to the section that was genealogy, and they basically almost threw up their hands and said, oh, brother, you know, now we're really in trouble. And so they went through, and they began to translate the genealogy, and then they began to share it with this group of people. And for the first time in years of working with them, they stopped everything that they were doing, and they began to pay attention. And they couldn't figure out, the missionaries couldn't figure out, what in the world is going on here? After they were done, people in the group came up to them and said, we never realized that what you are telling us is a true story. But when you started to tell us about people and their families and who they had as children and their grandchildren and, and everything about them, it was the first time that we realized that this is true. And so I'm guilty, and I'm going to admit that before you, of getting to certain sections of the Bible and kind of, kind of blown by it, you know? And uh, we're, we're into Daniel chapter 7 and the rest of the book of Daniel, and we can't do that anymore. And uh, so I want to lay that out ahead of time, because all Scripture is inspired by God. And all Scripture is profitable, meaning it has a positive bottom line. Regardless of what chapter you read, regardless of what passage that it is, whether it's the genealogy in your mind, the seemingly insignificant things, everything in the Word of God has a purpose as far as God is concerned. And when it goes out, it doesn't come back empty. There's something profitable that will come out of all of it. And what's profitable, what's interesting, is for teaching us things that we don't know, instruction, for reproof, for basically telling us what is not right in the way that we think, and for correction, to change the way that we think so that now we adopt the mind of God and the ways of God. He says, for training in righteousness, so that when we learn what God teaches us, it has a positive impact to where when we leave here today... We will take something with us and it will change our life and the way that we live, the way that we think, and the way that we interact with people around us. For training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. I'm convinced some of us aren't equipped for good works because we have never been trained. We've never been instructed. We haven't spent time in the Word of God. And God has nothing in our life to use to make a difference in the world in which He's placed before us. God's will will be accomplished, and what he desires will take place. And what's interesting to me is that, that what's seeming paradox that's taught throughout the Bible, and that is this, that God is in control and that man does have free will. And perhaps the story that I use to introduce this particular section of the Bible will be one that will help you to understand that. Because it seems like on one end we believe that man has no freedom of choice, that God is in control of all things, and things are going to happen the way God wants them to, whether man's involved or not. And that's specifically not taught in the Bible, that man has the freedom to choose. And God holds us accountable for those choices, and yet our choices will never surprise God, and God is always in control, and His will and His purposes will be accomplished. And I think maybe the potato story helps to illustrate it. There's freedom of choice, and there's also a sovereign will. And you know what? And that's basically over, overly simplifying the problem, but it's the truth. And so we need to recognize and understand that. 
So I'm reminded of these truths because as you'll learn in the second half, go back to Daniel chapter 7, as you're going to learn in the second half of Daniel, this particular section of the scripture emphasizes the prophetic. The first six chapters that we've already gone through emphasize the historic. And the historic is easier for many of us to grasp than the prophetic, and there's obvious reasons behind it. But we're going to take a look at it and see that as we go through this, I'm going to warn you in advance, the next section is not for those who are afraid to think or for those who go through life afraid to ask the tough questions. I love this uh, cartoon that I ran across recently, and it kind of reminds me of how most of us study the Bible, and I'm putting myself in that same category. There's a man and his uh, grandson that are walking in a snowstorm, and... uh, it's a little hard to see that unless we dim the lights. But then if the guy here that's not here to dim the lights, it's going to be really hard. So I'm just going to explain it as I go along. Just pretend the lights are dim. Okay. Anyway, they're walking in a snowstorm, and the little guy says to his granddad, says, uh, Granddad, do you think the dinosaurs hibernated or went south for the winter? You know, and the wise grandfather says, uh, I don't know. And the second frame, he says, uh, they didn't have fur, did they? And grandpa says, uh, I don't know. The third frame, the fourth frame, he says, uh, they were reptiles, weren't they, Grandpa? Grandpa says, I don't know. He says, uh, Grandpa, you don't mind me asking all these questions, do you? And Grandpa's classic response is, well, no, it's the only way you ever learn anything. <laughs> you know, and, I, and, I, and I think about that because I think sometimes that's the way that you and I read the Bible. It's kind of like, oh, those are tough questions. You don't mind that I ask, but if I never get any answers, that's okay because I, I, you know, I'm already getting a headache as it is. And uh, so we just kind of go through it and hope that it goes away. But this isn't going to go away unless you do uh, because, uh, you know, the bottom line is we're going to take a good hard look at what's going on here. You know, and and to many of us, when we come to a challenging section of the Bible, we kind of take Grandpa's approach. You know, ask all the questions that you want. Dig into it as much as you want. But if the answers aren't forthcoming, well, well, then who cares? But uh, that's not the case. The answers in many cases, as we look at what God has to say about the future, are forthcoming and they are very clear but it takes a little bit of time and it takes a lot of prayer and it takes a lot of study to get into what God has to say but the truths that we'll gain will change our lives because all scripture is profitable and that's what we're going to look at so you got your Bibles I forewarned you turn with me to Daniel chapter 7 Daniel chapter 7 and we're going to take a look at the first seven verses in the time that we have together Daniel chapter 7 we find these words In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea. They were different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. And I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, the second one, resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour, and eat much meat. After this I kept looking and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. It says, After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. In verse 1, the vision recorded by the prophet Daniel in this chapter was revealed to him in the first year, we're told, of Belshazzar's reign, which which history tells us was in 553 B.C. Now, when Belshazzar was made co-regent with Nebuchadnezzar, and we learned a little bit about that as we went and saw what took place in Daniel chapter 5, so we've already got some history that we can use as far as our recollection is concerned to help us understand it. Now, what's interesting is this particular vision, we're told, we're given a date so we know when it took place. Now, it took place, as it says, in the first year of Belshazzar's reign as he was made co-regent with Nebuchadnezzar. Now, when you go back to this, you recognize and understand that immediately there's something different about what's taking place in our study of the book of Daniel. 
and that is we are now going back in time to a time that's prior to what we already had left off last time we were together in the study of Daniel chapter 6 because in Daniel chapter 6 we are given the account of Daniel being tossed into the den of lions and we realize that now we're going back in time to a time and a place and a date that precedes what we've already learned. So immediately our study of the book of Daniel is out of chronological order, so to speak, as we're going through it. Now you need to grasp that to understand, otherwise you're going to be really confused. So we go back in time and we realize that this is the time and the date and the place, so God clarifies that for us so that we're not confused as we go through the rest of this particular study. So he says, this is when it happened. Well, when it happened was 14 years prior to what we've already learned as far as Daniel and the Den of Lions. Now, what's fascinating to me is this. What we see in the second section of Daniel is really a collection of revelations that came to Daniel in a period of time in his life, uh, what seemingly was what we would call an insignificant period of time. If you recall, if you go back to Daniel chapter 5 and then later in Daniel chapter 6, you'll realize in Daniel chapter 5 that Daniel was out of the loop, that he was no longer in a position of authority and no longer in a position in the Chaldean Empire. And when Belshazzar took over and Nebuchadnezzar was gone, Daniel was no longer in a place of prominence. And so he was set aside, seemingly, from man's perspective, he was set aside and, and it was an insignificant period of time that we would look at. Now, what's interesting to me is this, and here's a principle for all of us to grasp from this truth, and that is simply that God, you know, school is always in session in God's classroom called life. That school is always in session in God's classroom called life. And we need to recognize and understand that. It was during the seemingly insignificant time in Daniel's life where God revealed to him what we're going to study throughout the rest of the book of Daniel. And so there was never a downtime in God's, you know, in God's kingdom and in God's program, even for the life of an individual such as Daniel. And it was important that we recognize and understand it because I think sometimes some of us think that, you know what, I'm not doing what I want to be doing, therefore God can't use me or there's nothing really going on in my life. And we start walking around saying, oh, woe is me and feeling sorry for ourselves and all the rest of that stuff. But, you know, the bottom line is this that it was during this period of time that God continued to reveal to Daniel truths that are now recorded for our benefit to learn. So there was never a time where Daniel was out of God's loop, while there may seemingly have been a time when he was out of man's loop. And we need to recognize and understand that. For example, I was thinking about the same thing in light of how God used the Apostle Paul. It was when the Apostle Paul was thrown into prison, he was taken out of the fast-track lane of life, and he was put into prison, that God had him chained up every day for the purpose of, you know what, teaching him new truth. And it was these prison epistles that were written, the, 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 the letters of Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon and obviously Philippians, that God did some of his best work in the life of the Apostle Paul. Could you imagine when he was sitting there chained to a guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and as they rotated shifts, guess what? He didn't even have to go out and preach the gospel. They had to come to him. And he looked at it as a great opportunity. Not only a great opportunity to be taught new truths as far as God was concerned, but a great opportunity that God used for him to write scripture as he was moved by the Spirit of God. And so there's never a downtime, and that's what I'm trying to get across as I look at the life of Daniel. There's never a downtime, and we need to recognize and understand that. You know, it was fascinating as I was thinking about this truth yesterday when I was uh, visiting Matt in prison again. It was interesting to me how God used things that took place in my life 30 years ago to help me to spend time and to share with him similar truths to what God wanted to teach him. Now I'm going to be up front with you. The things that I went through 30 years ago in my life, I wouldn't wish upon anybody. And every day I hoped that they'd go away and that it wouldn't happen. But they did. And that's what we've got to deal with. So rather than dwelling on the past and feeling sorry for ourselves and using it for an excuse to be disobedient to God today, we need to take the attitude of the Apostle Paul who said, you know, I forget what lies behind from the standpoint of using it as my excuse for the rest of my life. Forgetting what lies behind, I press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, I'm going I'm to remember the things that took place in my life, but not as a, as, as a, as a way of self-wallowing pity, but as a way to look at the instruction that God had taught me, to bring it forward to my life today and use it to help to encourage and minister to the life of someone who's going through a similar struggle in their life today. See, we all have a choice of what we want to do with our past. 
But every time that I look at my past, I look at the scars of my past, and I'm reminded of the scars of Jesus Christ for me on the cross. And thank God that he has forgiven me of my past. And thank God that he has made me a new creature. And thank God that he who began a work, a good work in me will continue to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I want to challenge you to change the way that you're thinking as you look at your past. Don't feel sorry for yourself, but praise God that, you know what? He who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. Use the past as a tool to glorify God in your life as you help people around you today who may be struggling with similar things that you've gone through. You know, we need to, we need to hear that more often. I'm going to be up front with you. I'm about sick and tired of people going to counseling so they can justify and rationalize why they disobey God today. Hey, you know what? I don't care who you talk to, all of us are screwed up. Now, you may sit there and think, well, I'm really insulted by that. But you know what? Just ask somebody close to you if what I said about you isn't true. (laughs) But thank God he's not. There's none righteous, no, not one. That's my version. You know, that's God's version of truth. Mine was you're all messed up. But God's is the same thing. All have sinned and fall short of glory of God. What's he saying? You're all messed up. Okay, so maybe you didn't like my approach. (laughs) But what's new? (laughs) Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. Let's go through it very clearly and see what God has to say. So we've got the time and the date that takes place. It's in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Daniel saw a dream. In this insignificant, seemingly insignificant period of time, God was still working in his life. He said he saw a dream. Don't miss that. One of the easiest ways to recognize and understand the Bible as you read it is to read it carefully. He saw a dream, meaning it was one dream. It was singular. There was one overall thought. And as you go through it, you also recognize that he saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. So he saw a dream, which was singular, and he saw visions within that dream, which are plural. And so basically what we've got is, if you want to look at it from the standpoint of, um, of a, maybe a, a play, you've got you know, the, the entirety of it within itself. But within that, you've got certain um, acts or sets or whatever that take place or stages. And he's saying that I, I saw something that, you know, overall there was unity in its theme, but within that overall theme, there were broken down for us to understand stages that would take place within the overall theme. So he saw a dream, but he saw visions within that dream, meaning there were at least two visions, and we'll find out as we can identify as we go through it how many visions that there were. So we look at that and it's all broken down for us. And also, what's interesting is that note the great significance of this particular dream and visions. It was so significant that, the, that, that God, through the person of the Holy Spirit, moved within the heart of Daniel that he would write this down. And it's important for us to understand that no act of Scripture or no Scripture is given by any act of human will, that it was always God working through human agents to record for us the important things of life that God wants us to have. So the fact that this is written down for us today, some 2,500 years later, shows you the extreme importance of what takes place here as far as God is concerned for the lives of every one of us as we study the Word of God. It's a, you know, and think about it. This is a side note, but think about it. anything that's really important in life. It's pretty good counsel that you write it down. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we all know that anything is of great importance. We write it down. And what's interesting to me is how seemingly uh, we can just gloss over that truth when it comes to the Word of God. If God took the time to put this in writing for us, that means that God thinks it's really important. And so should we. So He wrote it down. So as we look at this, Daniel has been the interpreter of two dreams that we know about so far in our study. We know that he's interpreted two of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. And we're also going to identify four more dreams, one in chapter 7, one in chapter 8, one in chapter 9, and then a long dream in chapter 10 that goes all the way from 10-1 through the end of chapter 12, or the beginning of chapter 12. So we're going to see that. So what did he see in the dream and the visions? Now, as we look at this, I'm convinced that many of us shy away from some of the great truths of the Bible out of uh, one fear. Uh, Maybe another is laziness. And uh, the third thing is maybe just a general lack of understanding as to how to read the Bible. And that's important for us to consider as we look at this particular passage. When we're looking at prophetic passages, it's important that we recognize how do I understand what seemingly is very difficult to understand. So let me just give you a rule of thumb. The first rule of thumb is this. Always interpret Scripture with Scripture. And always interpret Scripture 
within the text in which we find it. For example, in the book of Daniel, we will look at this particular passage and interpret what God has to say within the context of what we've already learned is in the book of Daniel. That's the first place to start. When there's not enough help to identify what's going on within the context of the first book that it was written in, then we're going to go to other books of Scripture to help us to recognize and understand the message that God's trying to send us. And so the book of Daniel is a separate book in and of itself. There are 66 books in the Bible, all of them inspired by God, and every one of them will help validate the truth of one another. Where people get into trouble reading their Bible is they take something, let's say, out of the book of Daniel, they don't understand it, and yet they try to run with it as if they do without taking into consideration the light in which it was written, the context, or the overall passages in Scripture that will help eliminate any confusion that we find. Oftentimes, we don't even have to go outside of the chapter that we find it because as we look, God then gives us the answer. If you remember the interpretation of the dream in Daniel chapter 2, we didn't have to guess what the dream was all about because later in chapter 2, God says, and this is the interpretation of the dream. If you remember the parable that Jesus told as far as the sower and the seed was concerned, they didn't understand that the disciples and Jesus said, let me tell you now what it means. So often, often is the case, we don't have to get all crazy about things that we don't seemingly at first class understand. We just need to take a little time, dig into it, and see what God is trying to say. So as we go through this, let's take a look at it. How do you make sense of what we just read so far in this particular passage? Well, let's take a look at, uh, let's take a look at verse 2. It says, Daniel said, I was looking... In my vision by night, and behold, the word behold means to consider carefully. Behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Well, how do we make any sense of that? Well, you know what we need to do is we need to go to Scripture and find anything that will help us recognize and understand the phrase that is used. So turn with me back to Jeremiah chapter 49 for a second where we find a similar phrase that's used as far as the wind is concerned that will help us to understand and get some meaning out of this. In Jeremiah chapter 49, we see a similar thought that God shares with the prophet Jeremiah as concerning this idea of the four winds that were stirring up the great sea. Jeremiah chapter 49, look at verse 34. Here we find it again. That which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet concerning Elam at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am going to break the bow of Elam, the finest of their might. There's some, there's some poetic language that's there, but anybody that reads it goes, I'm going to break the bow. What's he talking about? He's talking about making them defenseless. They no longer will have weapons of offense, nor will they have weapons of defense. He is going to humble them before God. He says, I will break the bow, the finest of their might. They will basically be neutralized. He says, and I shall bring upon Elam, there's the phrase, the four winds from the four ends of heaven, and shall scatter them to all these winds. And there will be no nation to which the outcast of Elam will, will not go. So I shall shatter Elam before their enemies and before those who seek their lives, and I will bring calamity upon them, even my fierce anger, declares the Lord. And I will send out the sword after them until I have consumed them. Then I shall set my throne in Elam, and I shall destroy out its king and its princes, declares the Lord. But it will come about in the last days that I shall restore the fortunes of Elam, declares the Lord. So you notice what he says. He says, I'm going to take the four winds or the four corners of the earth or the four winds and I'm going to shatter them. I'm going to scatter them. I'm going to cause a great upheaval and there's going to be great turmoil and there's going to be tremendous amount of propaganda and turmoil that goes out through all of this. And so now we go back to the book of Daniel and we begin to realize what God is saying. He's saying, Daniel said, I was looking in my vision at night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The four winds of heaven basically are indicating that the, there's, there's God's control over everything that's going on as far as uh, humanity is concerned and the plan of God, and God's going to stir things up. As we see God saying that I'm in complete control and I'm going to break the bow of Elam. I'm the one who ultimately is behind everything that's about to take place. Elam will be humbled before God, but take note at one point or some point in the future that God will restore them back to their position. But in the meantime, God's will will be accomplished and his plan will come to fruition. 
So what he's saying here is Daniel's looking at this is Daniel's looking at this vision by night. Of heaven were stirring stuff up. And so what we learn by it is that God was actively involved in everything that we're about to learn and take place, that it was all within the plan of God, and God's stirring it all up. And he says, and God's stirring it up, what? Upon the great sea. The great sea throughout the Bible is always indicated as the Mediterranean Sea. And we see that in numerous illustrations over and over again that God recognizes or names the Mediterranean Sea the great sea. So very simply put, as we read this and understand it, here's what's going on. God is actively involved in everything that we're about to read and it's taking place. He's going to stir things up. You know, the wind usually comes from one direction, but here we see that the wind's coming from four directions and it's almost like a hurricane, a tornado. Man, it's blowing and, 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 it's, and it's just churned up and turned up. And it has to do with the areas specifically in and around the Mediterranean Sea. So now what he's about to tell us is that God's churning things up, stirring things up. And we also know this from the book of Revelation, that when we talk about the great sea, it's also talking about the great sea or the mass of humanity, which God calls the Gentiles. He's saying among all of these peoples, these great, great multitudes of peoples, that God is stirring things up. And out of this great multitude of people will emerge what we're about to take a look at step by step. What's going to emerge from this great multitudes of people in and around the Mediterranean Sea? Very simply, he goes through it and he begins to explain it to us. And as we look at it, we can see what's going on. He says the first was like a lion. What's, what's he talking about? Well, we already know as we've gone through this, he's talking about the kingdoms. And the reason that I say they're kingdoms, you say, well, Chuck, you know what? How do you know that these are kingdoms? How do you know what you're talking about is true? Very simple, because God tells us. Look at verse 17 of the same chapter. He's saying there's four beasts that are going to be stirred up. They're going to emerge from this great multitudes of people. But how do we know that they're empires? How do we know they're kingdoms? How do we know that they're people? And how do we know that they're not beasts as God literally called them a beast? Because in chapter 7, verse 17, it says, These great beasts, which are four in number, which we're going to look at, are four kings who will rise from the earth. You follow that? You don't have to guess. And it's not, well, that's your opinion. No, it's not. It's God's opinion. Because he clearly tells us. And so the first thing that we look at as these empires of world history, we already saw in, in Daniel chapter 2 the vision that was already given to Daniel and we re, uh, the vision that was given to Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel interpreted helped us to recognize and understand that the first kingdom or this first empire that would come out of the emergence of this great uh, this great change that was taking place within and around that area was the fact that it would be Babylon. And God in chapter 2 has already clearly shown us what his plan was for world history. There would be a head of gold and each successive nation after that or empire after that would deteriorate in value. And so it started off with the best and now it's leading to the worst. And what's interesting and fascinating to us is from God's point of view, people are not getting better. We're actually getting worse. As if God needs to remind us that in the United States of America today. We are not getting better, we are getting worse. And as we have gone away from the absolute truths of the Word of God to give us uh, discernment as far as right and wrong is concerned, where the Word of God is a lamp under our feet shining on us where we are and a light under our path telling us where we need to go, as we have gone away from the absolute truths of God's Word, God again validates His Word which says, you know what, you're not getting better, you're getting worse. You know, it's like that, what's that commercial that used to be on? You know, you're not, what, what is it? You're not getting older, you're getting better. Oh, right. You know, seriously, how many of us getting older feel like we're actually getting better? Every time I go out for a run, I'm not convinced of that argument. It's like, man, I'm getting worse. I'm not getting better. Things are falling apart all around me. Every time I look in the mirror, there's like something up here that wasn't there before and something down here that used to be up here. I don't know. It's like just getting rearranged, you know what I'm saying? We ain't getting any better. We're getting worse. And we need to recognize and understand that. So the first thing that we see is he says the first was like a lion. Anytime you see the word like or as, it's a simile. God using it to try to help us understand what he's trying to say. The, the first was like a lion. The first what? The first empire that he's talking about. This group that would emerge from the Mediterranean. He says it was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and a human mind was also given to it. We can sit there and beat ourselves to death and try to figure out what all this means, but you know what? God has already told us what it means. 
The bottom line is that the first empire was Babylon. He said it in Daniel chapter 2 when he said, You, O king, are the head of gold. That's what started it all going for us. So we know where the beginning was. That Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. The first world empire that God chose to reveal to us for human history purpose was the nation of Babylon. We know from archaeological discoveries that the lion was a symbol of Babylon's pride and its symbol of strength. Even today when they go and they have archaeological digs, there's a lion that was found on a pedestal that represented the kingdom of Babylon. So here was Babylon that assumed the lion kind of as its mascot, and we recognize and understand to this day as we look back on history that it's very clear that God was speaking of Babylon, even though he said specifically to Daniel he was talking about Babylon. Again to us, he reminds us I'm talking about Babylon. The first was like a lion. It was ferocious, it was vicious, and it had the wings of an eagle, meaning very simply that its army, when it began to move, moved very quickly. And it took over and devoured what was before him. The Bible uses a lion as a picture of Satan. And it says that your enemy, your adversary, Satan, is, is like a, a roaring lion. What? Seeking someone to devour. And we see the same word picture that's used here. Babylon as a lion went forth and began to devour all the nations around it. And it, did a, and it did it very quickly, like the wings of an eagle. But notice he says, and I kept looking until its wings were plucked. Okay, it stopped. It was done. It didn't spread any longer. It was within its borderlines. It was confined to the, to the territory that God allowed it to have. It says it was done, it was stopped, it was lifted up from the ground. Which is fascinating because we already know that the kingdoms are kings, or the kings represent the kingdoms. What have you already learned about the person of Nebuchadnezzar? That when he went insane because he wasn't humble before God, God put him down on his hands and knees or on all fours, and he began to graze as an animal did for a period of seven years. We already know that. We don't have to guess. And so all of a sudden he says, as I was looking, the wings were plucked, he was humbled before God. We say that term even in our culture today. We're going to have to clip his wings. You know, you ever have your kid out of control? It's like, you know, I'm going to have to clip his wings. A little bit of too much freedom there, a little flying around too much, we're going to have to clip his wings. Well, the same is used right here. He plucked his wings. He clipped his wings. It was stopped. He clipped the wings of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar began to crawl on all fours. He was humbled before God. And notice what it says. And then I noticed and I was looking until he was lifted up from the ground again, which was his restoration... He was made to stand on two feet like a man. And notice, a human mind also was given to him. And I believe if you read Daniel chapter 4 very clearly, it has to do with the fact that Nebuchadnezzar came into a living, loving relationship with the God who created him. That God had humbled him to the point where he was broken before God, realizing that he was not God, that there is only one God, and Nebuchadnezzar gave his heart and his life to his Creator. And we see that he's restored at the end of Daniel chapter 4. And then we move on into Daniel chapter 5. And that's what we find here. Now it says, And behold, another beast, a second one, if you remember our, the same thing in Daniel chapter 2, we see the arms of silver. A second one resembling a bear was raised up on one side. A second one resembling a bear was raised up on one side. Meaning what? That that one side of that bear was stronger than the other side. It's kind of like if you lift weights and your right arm stronger than your left arm, you can just see that there's, you know, some of us, you know, we're stronger on one side or the other. If you're left-handed, generally you're going to be stronger on your left side, and if you're right-handed, you'll be stronger on the right hand. But the bottom line is what he's saying is this, that one, one side of that bear was lifted up and was stronger than the other side. And so as we look at that, we're also told that there were basically two kingdoms that were involved, and that was the Medes and the Persians. And the Medes were not as strong as the Persians. And we notice that when the Persians then took over, they actually are the ones that got all the notoriety, but the kingdom was that of the Medes and the Persians. Now what's fascinating about that is, these two cousins of the Medes and Persians, they were two cousins. One headed up the Medes, or the Media, and the other headed up Persia. And basically all they did was fight among themselves. We used to have a, a, a family in our neighborhood, they had like six boys. And, and they loved just beating on each other. And we were all glad they were beating on each other. You know why? Because when they were, weren't beating on each other, guess what they were doing? They were beating on us. You know, that's the way it was. It was like we were happy when they were fighting. There was only one thing they took delight in more than beating each other up, and that was finding a con common enemy and jumping up and beating on them. Now, the Medes and the Persians were no different. They took delight in fighting against each other, but you know what? Once they found a common enemy, then they got together, and then they defeated that common enemy. The Bible tells us that they started off with two and that the, one, that the two ultimately became one. He says, And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth. And it talks about Babylon and Lydia, and also uh, Egypt, the three nations that it devoured, between its teeth. And they said, Arise, devour much meat. 
I want you to notice something here, and that's very simply that God is always in control. That it was God who ordained the Medes and the Persians to arise, stirred up this beast that emerged out of this particular area for the purposes of fulfilling the, problem, the, the promise and, and the plan of God. It was God who commanded them, saying, Arise and devour much meat. And so this bear, this lumbering bear, went in, and there was many differences between Babylon and the Medes and the Persians, but what's fascinating is it started out, as the Bible said, arms of silver and became a breastplate of silver. There were two nations, they divided, they were divided, and they got together and they became one. And we learn that from history, and we also see it clearly from the Word of God. He says, And after this took place, I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, And the beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. Isn't that fascinating? As we look back through everything that God's already shown us in Daniel chapter 2, he reinforces it in this particular chapter, and that's there's sides of brass that took place from the other vision that we saw. And that it was a leopard. He says, after this I kept looking, and behold, some translations have a leopard or a panther, but it says another one, and another one of a different kind, although it would be the same if we looked at it. We would look back in history and say, one empire is the same as the rest. But they're not. Babylon was different. Babylon was the greatest. It deteriorated to the point where the Medes and Persians took over. And if you notice that, that, that as far as the head of it's concerned, Babylon was a, was a true uh, uh, monarchy, so to speak. Nebuchadnezzar called all the shots. We already learned in our time and study of the book of Daniel chapter 6, when it came to the laws of the Medes and Persians, even Cyrus and Darius were still subject to those laws. Nebuchadnezzar can make a law, he could change it. Cyrus, Darius were under the law of the Medes and Persians and they couldn't change it. So as you see the whole system deteriorate, you begin to realize, you know what? The best system was the one that Babylon had. The best system when when there was one person in charge, if that person was a righteous person, the nation flourished. If that person was a wicked person, the nation deteriorated. But we look at this, what's going on. It says, and then I looked and behold another one like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. The Greek empire arose. The Bible tells us that it was like a leopard or a panther that it struck quickly, that it had four wings on its back as opposed to the wings of an eagle, which meant that it was even quicker and swifter than that of Babylon and it went into all the territories of the world and it conquered more territory than any of the other first two did combined. Alexander the Great was a young man who at the, by the age of 32 sat down on the river bank and began to cry and to weep. And when his generals came to him and said, what are you crying about? He said, we have no more world to conquer. I have no more goals. We own it all. What are we going to do? And he drank himself to death. At the end of that particular period of time in his life, his four generals took over. Notice what the Bible says. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Is God amazing? Is God's word tremendous? Is God's word trustworthy? Is God's word reliable? God's word is, word is incredible. Now, for the skeptics who sit out there and say, yeah, but you know what? Well, Daniel had already seen the Medes and the Persians take over because he was already part of their empire, if we'll remember from Daniel chapter 6, to which I say very simply this. Even if this was written after the Medes and the Persians... Daniel did not live to see the Greek Empire. Daniel did not live to see Alexander the Great. And Daniel did not live to see the death of Alexander the Great and the taking over of that particular kingdom or empire by his four generals. But you know what? God sees it all because he's outside of the dimension of time. And God's hand is actively involved in all of human affairs. The Bible says, and dominion was given to it. Now after this, I kept looking in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth, and it devoured and crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. The Bible clearly teaches that this empire was the empire of Rome, and the similarities between Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 are so similar that you can't miss the correlation between the two. And what's interesting is this, the Bible gives us more information on the fourth beast than of all the other three combined. And the reason for it is very simple, and that is this. The fourth beast, the Roman Empire, was never destroyed. It was never conquered by another empire. It simply fell apart from within. The Roman Empire is not dead. 
The Roman Empire, the Bible tells us, will be resurrected or revived one day. What's interesting is to look at some of the quotes that are, that are mentioned. Gibbon said this of the empire. He says, The empire of the Romans filled the world. And when the empire fell into the hands of a single person, the world became a safe and dreary prison for his enemies. To resist was fatal, and it was impossible to fly. Dr. Culver says this, 2,000 years ago, Rome gave, us, gave the world the ecumenical unity which the League of Nations, listen to me, and the United Nations organizations have sought to give us in our time. This modern attempt, these modern attempts are not original at all, but are revivals of the ancient Roman ideal which never since the time of Augustus Caesar has been wholly lost. It's important to recognize and understand the Word of God has much to say about what's going to take place in the future. And the reason that we're going to go through and look at this is because that is extremely relevant for our days. God places more emphasis on this fourth empire than He does on the other three combined because this empire has a lot to do with what's relevant for you and me today. And it seems like since we're that type of a culture anyway, anyway we come in and say, uh, what's in it for me? Well, I'm going to tell you what's in it for you. What's in it for you is the same that's in it for me, and that is the Word of God is going to give us clarity in the midst of confusion in the world we live in today that's wondering what's this world's coming to, where's it all heading, and you know what, and what should we be doing in the meantime to get ready for what God is planning to do in the future. You know, the Bible says that the four winds of heaven were stirring things up. You know, we live in a day and age where things are getting stirred up, more so than ever before. As a nation, we have been isolated from much of that for many, many years. But you know what? I, you know, for many of us who are Americans and think that the world revolves around the United States of America, I hate to burst your bubble, but you know what? It doesn't. The Word of God revolves around ten nations that are going to emerge in the Middle East, and they're, they're going to be the revived Roman Empire, and everything is going to revolve around them. And that's what God's going to tell us about next time. But what's interesting to me is this. You know, the United States is only 200 years old, and we get all excited about what a great country we have. You know, the Roman Empire lasted for a thousand years. It still exists today, and it's going to be resurrected again. The point that I'm trying to get across is this. The four winds of the earth is God's hand moving upon the affairs of men and stirring things up. I sense that we're in the days where God's hand is definitely stirring things up. The pot is getting stirred up, and God is actively involved in the lives of human affairs. And it's exciting when you know what God's plan is and it's not fearful or dreadful at all because we see what's happening. We live in a day and age where propaganda and the opinion of man, where philosophy and humanism and psychology has subtly invaded even the truth of God's word. And things are getting stirred up. You and I have seen poll after poll and we've watched it and we've said these words and I know that you have. You say, how in the world can people see things like that? How in the world can't they see things as God sees things? How in the world can't they see things the way that they really are, the truth? How can one person deceive so many people? Isn't that interesting? There's going to be a person that arises out of this particular empire that's resurrected that will be able to deceive the whole world. And the reason that people are deceived, folks is because they have gotten away from the objective measurement by which all of human behavior must be measured. The reason that we are deceived, even in the church today, is what we've taken our eyes off the Word of God and we began to put it on people around us. Their opinions, their philosophy, their psychologies, all the stuff that's going on. The bottom line is that we have to be committed and dedicated to dig into the Word of God because it's truth that will set us free from the confusion around us. The world is filled with propaganda. All you got to do is watch a TV show. All you got to do is go to a movie. All you got to do is listen to some award show and some new propaganda that they're being that portrayed to the American public. And what's amazing to me is this. When people are asked to comment on surveys, I will guarantee you the majority of people simply regurgitate that which they've already been told by the media because they've never stopped to consider it. The people that answer it with any, any thoughts at all are the people that you will never see Put on the TV. I mean, think about it. You go, how many people did they have to interview to come up with this moron? So it's like, well, where did they come up with this person? Did they go through 50 people to finally come up with the person that's going to say what they want them to say? 
The bottom line is, is that we, are, we have become lazy to the point where we regurgitate the opinions and the philosophy that are given to us and we start to believe that what's being said is true. I do not believe for a moment that the American people by a large percentage do not have a problem with what's going on in our country today. I do not believe that. I pray that it's not right. And if it is right, God help us. We need to be a voice that's crying in the wilderness. We need to be a light that shines in darkness. We need to become salt in the world where God has put us. And when the salt is ineffective, then this world and this country is in deep trouble because it's God's people who have always been used by God to make a difference in their culture. And you and I need to be used by God. And the only way we can be used by God is if we're in the Word of God and we know the mind of God and the will of God that we can share it with people around us. Why is prophecy so important? Let me just tell you one reason and one reason alone, if nothing else. Prophecy is important so that we recognize and understand that God is in control. The second thing is even better than that. Sometimes I think in my own heart, and that's this that God's Word is reliable. If God says He so loved this world that He gave us His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him and not perish would have everlasting life, if God's Word is true and reliable, then what I would say to you is this, you better believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Because if you don't, there is no hope for you. If you don't, you are surely going to perish in your sins. If you don't, you will experience the wrath and the judgment of God. God's word is true. God's word is reliable. And if he went to great stakes and pains to give us a, a, a history or the, the vision of a world empire from the Babylons to the Medes and the Persians to the Greeks to the Romans to what he's going to do in the future, how much more so is that has proven to be reliable? Can we believe that which is yet to come? Father, thank you for your word. We just thank you that it's trustworthy, that it's reliable. God, I hope and I pray that every person that hears these words would recognize what you say is true, that all Scripture is God-breathed. And it is profitable for instruction, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be adequately equipped to do the work that you have called us to do. God, help us to become better students of your word, to get excited about your truth, so that we can go out in the world that you have us in today and be able to warn them of the judgment to come, to warn them of the deception that will take place, and to point back to your truth as a measurement for all of human behavior so that we can share that with others who will in turn put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the only way, the only truth, and the only way to the Father. God, we just praise you in his name. Amen. Okay, reminder, if you have...